cliffcentral.com. It is time for all of us to get to African analysis. This is our chance to catch up with uh, JJ Cornish on all the big things going on in Africa. And <clears throat> we're going to look this morning at Swaziland, <laughs> at the French and their continuing involvement in our continent, for good or for bad, and Sudan. So let's turn our attention immediately to Jean-Jacques Cornish. How are you, JJ? Bonjour. I'm in immensely well. Immensely good. well. Good, good, good. So what's happening in our neighbor? I had a, yes, yes, go ahead. I had an absolute fear when you pushed the button that you're going to get Carl Niehaus's face instead of mine <laughs> on the screen. You know, when you do get round to interviewing him, there's only one question to ask, and that is, Carl, do you have hemorrhoids or are you a perfect arsehole? <laughs> Oh, JJ, I'll leave the interview to you. I'll get him on and you can ask him that. All right. So quickly, just <laughs> Wouldn't quickly, I love it? Uh, yes. Our neighboring country of Iswatini, I know you and I spoke about this last year, and it's just fallen from the headlines. It seems that King Mswati III is just about the only man in the whole world who can still get away with being an absolute autocrat. And nobody seems to want to or try to correct his behavior. He's just carrying on like an absolute monarch in the year 2021, when we thought uh, Louis XIV had been the last to say, l'état c'est moi, it's not true. This guy doesn't seem to care, and he just gets away with it. There are still people in prison in Eswatini, right? Yes, and they've killed dozens of protesters in recent months. You know, my teeth go on edge when people talk about him as the last absolute monarch in Africa, because uh, M6, you know, Mohammed VI in uh, Morocco is the other. So we have two left. I, I think I might right. have told you the story. I was covering something in a Swatini once when the television cameraman next to me went mockadoy, sort of, and started yelling. Oh, God. And I thought that he'd had a seizure and something terrible had happened. Turns out, though, that, you know, the uh, parsimonious king uh, was using as praise singer as an official television man. Oh my God. And he literally was holding onto the camera, screaming out praise for the king. I turned to a Swazi friend and said, surely, he said, you know what? You should have been with us in Germany last week when he did this. Oh my God. <laughs> German security rushed in and wrestled him to the ground. Can so you imagine? I don't know. That. Swazi television must have bought, uh, you know, footage from someone else because they didn't get their own. Good heavens. But what a story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mswati III is a very, quite an engaging guy to speak to. But the fact is, the pupils who've been out for a long time, they only went back to school about, uh, what, a few couple of weeks back mm. and began or resumed their protests immediately. And uh, they've cracked down. The thing is, they are calling for an end to Mzwati III, calling for the end to his autocratic rule. And I think that hurts him more than anything else. And uh, they are taken to the streets. They're not going to class. Uh, the police have cracked down. And on the, the 13th, they killed a protester. And that, as I say, meant they killed dozens in the last month. So the king now has determined the immediate and indefinite closure of schools. So I, I don't I don't see what happens there in, oh. in Swaziland now. How they how they restore order I don't know. And what what is South Africa going to do? Uh, we often come in there with a, a relatively heavy hand to say, hey, 
Yeah, you're our we fully don't. encircled neighbor. We you will behave the way we want you to. We don't anymore. I mean, it seems that you you would have to set explosives under our Department of International Relations for them to actually say something or do something about uh, Swaziland. It's just, it's a disaster. Bulelo, I saw you holding your hand in your head, uh, your head in your hands just now. Um, I mean, do you have, uh, Lebang, do you have family or friends in Swaziland? Do you have people that you speak to there often? Because I, I think it's outrageous that these people are, you know, five hours drive from Johannesburg and they are living in an autocracy. It's crazy. You know, JJ, we, we spoke about it a couple of weeks ago and uh, he, he disagreed with me, I, I think, slightly from what I took is that, you know, we live in a time where. We, we want to think we are Europe or America who have had the jump on us for whatever historical reasons on establishing democracy is that, unfortunately, I don't think we can have the soft hand that, that, that is being preached and practiced in places like Davos is that do something and make it happen. Like we cannot police this region how we police Switzerland and this idyllic nature is like we need to do something because if not, that will spill into uh, our country. And we have enough problems here because we've been mucking about for so long. So Jean-Jacques, I, I, I hope we do do something and I hope we, we, we got to tighten our hands around the throats there, in my opinion. And it, I, I don't see another option now because we've left it too long. Bring, it like brings the Colin Powell maximum to play. If you break it, then you own it. And he said mm. that to uh, the Bush about going into Iraq. Mm-hmm. Well, the same applies. If we really go in with a heavy hand yeah. and and change the regime or do something in Swaziland, we own it and we'll own all the uh, problems. We will own the uh, highest per capita HIV rate in the world. You know. So, yes, I, I fully agree with you. I, I certainly don't agree that uh, disagree that we should we should get tough. And certainly in this case, with uh, uh, the, the eyes of the world are on us as much as on Swaziland in terms of that. We play the moral high ground or claim it. We need to we need to ensure that it is implemented in our neighbors. You know, interestingly, uh, Gareth Canthon and I mm-hmm. went to Swaziland when we were working for independent newspapers at that time mm-hmm. before they became the enemy. Yeah. <laughs> we went there to buy a Swazi newspaper and we looked and spoke and it just became absolutely plain that uh, this newspaper would have nothing like freedom of expression and uh, you know however profitable we might have made the newspaper it just would not be something that we could hold up so we so we just recommended to our bosses forget about it hmm. tell us quickly about the the french um the, apparently emmanuel macron says that the killing of algerian protesters in paris 60 years ago was an unforgivable crime but unforgivable crimes are still happening all over algeria and in fact all over north africa at the moment some of them at the hands of the french some of them at the hands of other people and 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 and, and actors um really this is it seems like you know again we're very good at assigning blame to people who are capable of admitting that blame themselves. But there are things that are far more important that are happening right now that we don't seem willing to deal with. Um, is this going to make the Algerians feel better or is this just about France looking virtuous? Well, you know, the interesting thing is France's ability to say things went terribly wrong without actually issuing a formal apology, which means they will have to cough up. Yes. But this was 
60 years ago, December 17, uh, no, October 17, 60 years ago. And it, just before the, uh, uh, the uh, Civil War, uh, the Liberation War. And, and what had happened was the French were protesting against a curfew which involved only Algerians. Algerians were put under curfew, so 30,000 of them took to the streets. Now, a certain, uh, a, a certain, uh, Nazi sympathizer, hmm. he was put in charge. Maurice Parron was put in charge of this, and he said, get tough. And they wow. did. And they shot a number of these protesters. Well, uh, you know, the, the French at the time said there was a handful, maybe five, maybe three that died. Uh, historians accept that it was, uh, it was at least 50. Algerians claim it was 300. But the bodies were thrown into the Seine. And it was, you know, it was hidden for years and years and years. Unbelievable. Uh, Maurice Papon was awarded the, the uh, Légion d'honneur in the same year. You know, that's the French huh. knighthood. Well, uh, he, he did have that removed in 1998 for uh, being party to the uh, deportation of Jews to concentration camps during the war. But, uh, you know, that hasn't made things better for the Algerians. They, they are, I don't imagine, unless they got an official apology, we'll be happy with this. They're going to say this is part of, and their liberation war was certainly one of the bitterest ever, ever yeah. fought. The Algerians say that not a single family in Algeria went untouched in that struggle. Good heavens. Uh, we've got, we've got limited time, but I do want to find out about what's happening in the Sudan. We, we talked about Sudan just the other day as a, a country that we wanted to focus in on. And, um, it seems their military leadership are looking to start another coup. <laughs> what's going on there? Well, Since Omar al-Bashir left, it just hasn't got better for them, has it? Well, you know, it, they did start this transformation, civilian military transformation and that seemed to be working and certainly it did things like remove them from the terrorist the the, the united states terrorist and uh, yes things seem to be working for them to some extent and uh, we do then have abdullah uh, the the, the uh, prime minister but unfortunately two weeks ago there was an attempted coup that failed and uh, uh, the military have now stepped in and said, uh, Abdel Fattah al-Buran, uh, uh, the pressure is on him to just declare another coup uh, because it was, seems to be that Omar al-Bashir's uh, backers were, were behind the, the coup, the failed coup. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot of confusion there now. There's a lot also of uh, economic problems. You know, uh, they, they don't have the bulk of the oil. South Sudan, which seceded, has the oil, as we explained last week, and mm. the oil is tapped through uh, Sudan. Uh, now, the, the the demonstrators were suddenly able to get right up to the walls or the gates of the presidential palace. Hasn't happened with other demonstrations. Sure. Very low police present also hasn't happened in other demonstrations. So there seems to be some complicity in this, allowing this big demonstration and the Demonstrators calling for away with the hunger government, they're calling it, the government that has uh, removed uh, fuel subsidies that en enabled them to run businesses and run their houses and motor cars, uh, uh, inflation soaring in the country. So economically, they're feeling it. In the back sky, they're feeling it terribly. And uh, uh, the military, I think, get a sense that if they can step in and uh, bring some kind of relief and order, 
they will be thanked for this. But certainly the uh, civilian part of the government is saying this is just a potential fa- power grab. And uh, uh, Abdullah Hamdok uh, has been talking about this, re- the prime minister saying we cannot allow it. So they've got to hold wow. fast. And th- th- this is a time for Africa, I think, to step in and help out as much as it can. Sounds uh, sounds messy, but then uh, that part of the world is always a little bit messy. Uh, JJ, it's always good to see you, and thank you very much for, for joining us this morning. Africanalysis is, of course, brought to you by the Johannesburg Business School, and we're looking at uh, what happens on the African continent uh, one or two weeks at a time. Uh, JJ, it's always uh, great to have your insights on these things. Thank you very much. Cliffcentral.com.